Hi, welcome back to Eight Words or Less. This is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, Eight Words or Less. Some of you know me already. I'm Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm James. I'm your other host. And this episode, we're looking at a book called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, world famous author. This book was actually recommended to us by the ex-group chief executive of HSBC, John Flint, who very kindly will be joining us on a bonus episode to talk to us about the book and why he recommended it and to share some of his insights. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that. Well, Simon says, What do you do when you're playing in a game that has no finish line? There's no such thing as winning in charity or winning in business, he says. But when we listen to the language of many leaders, they don't know what game they're in. They talk about being number one, being the best, or beating the competition. And the problem is, Simon says, there's no such thing. When we play an infinite game with a finite mindset, there are a few very predictable and consistent outcomes. The decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation, all of which lead to suffering and the ultimate demise of an organization. If we are to succeed and thrive in the infinite game, we're going to have to learn to play with an infinite mindset. So many of the pressures on us these days are to play with a finite mindset, constantly being pushed by outside forces or internal incentive structures to focus exclusively on the quarter, often at the expense of the health of the organization itself. In his book, The Infinite Game, Simon Sinek encourages the reader to recognize the game that they're in and lead with an infinite mindset. And that is to lead in a way that advances a just cause, perpetuates the game, invites others to join in, is ethical, inclusive, and thinks generationally. He says it takes tremendous courage to play with an infinite mindset, to set out every day to advance something bigger than ourselves, to take care of the teams around us, because we know that it is the people that will ensure the longevity of the organization. The more we understand the mindset with which we're playing is bad for the organization and bad for us, the more courage we will have to withstand those pressures to play with the mindset of the game we are actually in. So James, what is your central message? So my central message, and I think you, you've touched on it in, in a couple of ways in your introduction, but my central message, obviously in eight words or less, is that leadership for today requires an infinite mindset. For my first petal, uh, I'm going to talk in a little bit more detail about what you uh, touched upon in the introduction, which is the difference between a finite and an infinite game and the damage caused by wrongly playing with a finite mindset. And I think this is the heart of the book in many ways, because, well, I mean, to start with, you know, it's important to understand the difference between the two. And the author starts with this explanation. And he says, as long as there are two players, a game exists. And that there are only two types of games, a finite game and an infinite game. A finite game is like a game of football, or perhaps if you're listening from the US, a game of soccer. Everyone knows the rules. They largely play by those rules. And there is an end within a set time period. And at that end, someone is declared a winner. And 
the critical thing is that so many of us automatically just think that we're always playing a finite game. But actually what Simon says, don't know about you, Simon, every time I say Simon says, I'm slightly thinking about that children's game, but every time every the author two. says, <laughs> every time the author, you know, actually most of the time the author says, we're playing in an infinite game. And these by contrast, they have infinite time horizons. They are played by both known but also unknown players. And there are no exact specific rules. But crucially, because there is no finish line, because they have those infinite time horizons, there is no such thing as winning an infinite game. You mentioned a couple, but uh, something I thought some other good examples is there's no such thing as winning in marriage or friendship. And, you know, we may beat candidates for jobs, but at the end, there's no such thing as a ultimate winner of all careers. And no matter how successful any of us are, there's no one's ever going to be declared the winner of life. And And the author critically says this is the reality of business. There's no such thing as winning the game of business. All of those references and all of those examples are journeys, not events. And you mentioned this, Sammy, but the, the critical problem that this book is trying to address is that most leaders confuse these two games and they're playing with a finite mindset and in an infinite game. And I'm just going to talk about two problems that come from this in particular. Uh, and I think we've actually referenced them quite a bit in, in some of our other episodes. But the first is that a finite mindset causes a short-term outlook. So in the infinite game of business, the true value of organization cannot be measured. The success it has achieved is based on an, a set of arbitrary metrics over these short-term timeframes. But sadly, this isn't the reality. And most of the world of business is dominated by short-term metrics. Just think quarterly earnings results and, and how they drive so much of the decision-making within business. And this pressure on these near-term results causes leaders to employ short-term tactics. And it can be seen so many ways, like reduction in research and, and development that you so often see in, in big pharma, extreme cost-cutting or redundancies without that sitting within a wider strategy, offshoring key competencies. And I think a lot of the challenges we see, especially the sort of breakdown in trust in, in between corporate and, and the wider society, is tied to this, um, this short-term uh, decisions that are taken by leaders. Absolutely. When Paul Pullman, the ex-CEO of Unilever, determined that his true north was going to be sustainability, it allowed him to resist some of these pressures. And that was a really difficult but fruitful conversation he had with his shareholders to say he wasn't going to report his quarterly earnings because his people needed to be able to focus on the purpose and the values and culture of the organization rather than just constantly chasing their tail and reporting on metrics. Yeah, yeah, a good example of when it's resisted. And I just, perhaps, sadly, it doesn't seem that that happens often enough, maybe. And I mean, this links into the second issue that, that's raised in the book, that is one of the deep-seated problems the author says is driven by this 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 mistake of thinking in a finite with a finite mindset, 
And, and he says the origin actually was, comes with Milton Freeman, the um, uh, famous economist. You probably heard this, it's very famous, but he made this assertion that there is one and only one social responsibility of business, which is to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase profits. Actually, it's the opening line of my book, James. <laughs> I didn't actually know that, Sammy, but I am looking forward to reading your book. And and it's interesting because it was held out as such a, a truth for so, so long. And you know, what I thought the author talked about so effectively here was how this has created a toxicity in corporate culture and that leads to the prioritization of, of the benefits of shareholders above all other stakeholders, putting far less value on the importance of other key contributors, um, such as, you know, the, the perceived value of employees that might be seen and labor in general versus the, the importance of shareholders. And I think too often people think this was always the way, this was always how business was. And the author comes up with a number of examples to say that actually this wasn't always the reality. He talks about Henry Ford, who said that a business that makes nothing but money is a poor kind of business. And he also uses the fact that the average life of a company in the 1950s was over 60 years, whereas today it's less than 20 years. Uh, again, sort of indicating that there was more of a focus on, on longevity and, and sustainable business uh, prior to this assertion from Friedman. But I think the most telling and almost grotesque stat that he comes up with is that in 1978, the average CEO made approximately 30 times the average worker's salary. But by 2016, the average had increased to over 800%. Uh, to 271 times the average worker's pay. Yeah, and what I love about the B Corporation movement is that shift from a shareholder to stakeholder mentality. And they talk about business not just being the best in the world, but the best for the world. And when my consultancy went through their verified assessment in 2016, uh, James, it was a bruising experience to say the least. We had to provide evidence of things I'd not even considered before, the pay differential of highest and lowest paid workers in our supply chain, how we verify their ethical standards, how we prioritize local companies in our community, or our policy on water irrigation in the Middle East or air conditioning, how we benchmark rates in each country that we operate in, and the percentage of revenue not profit that goes to charitable causes. So we made it, but we realized we only made it to base camp. And there was such a long way to go on this journey to becoming the yeah. best for the yeah. world. And I mean, it's good that those movements are occurring. And I think there are more examples of them. I think there's hope that uh, out of the, the tragedy of, of COVID-19, there may become more pressure on business to, um, to to consider multiple stakeholders to realize that there is more than just Friedman's assertion about making profits. And I think if organizations are going to adapt to the challenge, I think that is why leadership for today requires an infinite mindset. Fantastic. And James, what's your second petal? In the second petal, I'm just really talking about, I think it's important that we touch upon the, the different elements of what an infinite mindset really means. So the just cause is one of the things he spends the most time on. And he starts by saying that nearly all organizations have some sort of purpose, vision, or mission statement, usually plastered on walls or, or in big letters on, on meeting rooms or such like. But he argues that the vast majority of these don't qualify as a just cause. And 
part of the reason for this is that quite often they are not constructed in the right way. He says that for a just cause to be effective, for it to be a just cause, it must firstly be for something. It must be affirmative. I not You can't compare yourself negatively to something. You must have a cause that is for something. It must be optimistic and inclusive. It must be resilient and it must be big enough to be ultimately unachievable. And he talks about a few common failures. He said often, you know, just causes or mission statements that you see are just too innocuous or too focused on quality products or other elements of their business. He, he talks about one mission statement which says the company exists to deliver high performance, smarter products, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But this type of a mission statement really inspire people. So he talks about a vast swath of, of these mission statements that actually do not meet that first test, so to speak. And, you know, another example is, you know, saying that your company wants to be the best, almost falling into that exact trap. You're articulating the fact that you're thinking about a finite game there. The next thing, Sammy, that he says is important in an infinite game is around trusting teams. And the author, what I liked on this uh, section, he takes three industry three areas that are usually almost quite cynical about. He talks about Navy SEALs, he talks about the police, and he talks about workers on oil rigs. And in all of them, he shows how in these typical, I don't know, you would, you would say quite maybe traditional, I'm not sure if that's the right word, you know, organizations, how he takes examples of how they've actually built these trusting teams. And with the Navy SEALs, he talks about a four-box matrix of how they evaluate people who want to join. And on, on one side is performance and on the other is trust. So if you imagine on the bottom left, you've got low performance, low trust individuals, which you'd expect to, to, to not make, make the cut. But what's interesting is on the top left hand of that matrix where you have high performance, but low trust, those individuals, even though they're performing well, also don't make the cut through, through the evaluation. But if you're high trust, even if your performance is not up to scratch, they would still retain and train and give that individual the tools they need to improve their performance because fundamentally it is the trust that's important. And I thought this was really interesting because, and you've worked with a lot of organizations and a lot of leaders, so you have a better vision on this than I do. But I think actually a lot of organizations become more focused and more obsessed around the performance side of things. So if you hit your financial metrics, if you bring in the, the money, if all of those side of things which are easily measurable would be the things that generate promotions and, and bonuses and others. And quite often, not enough focus is given to that, that trust area, maybe because it's harder to, to measure. But uh, I don't know, have you, have you seen that in any of the organizations you worked with? Yeah, most organizations are looking to change their results, be it more innovative, more productive, better financials. So the results that they're looking at changing, if you focus just on actions alone, it reduces trust. So the vulnerability-based trust, those experiences that we can create for our teams, they then inform the beliefs, whether spoken or unspoken, which is one of the definitions of culture, which will get you the actions which will drive the results. And so the work that we do with leaders is trying and organizations is trying to get them into the mindset of these things are a byproduct. If you're able to speak up, show your vulnerability, say that you need help or you don't have the answer, 
then you're going to start shifting the beliefs in the system, which will get you the results that you want. So speak up being a key component of that. And that came in through in the book as well. I also like the fact you use the word vulnerability because time and again, Simon Sinek says that vulnerability is key to creating that trusting environment for leaders to be able to be vulnerable within front, in front of their, their teams, but also for the individuals to be able to be vulnerable, to be themselves. And that, he says, is the key component of creating a trusting team. Yeah, and what we see is there's this desire for more accountability, more personal responsibility or ownership. And in my mind, accountability more than anything else is linked to creating that vulnerability-based trust. So if you imagine a triangle, I think vulnerability-based trust goes at the bottom and everything else builds on it. Yeah, I don't know, Sam, maybe I'm a bit cynical here, but I don't think that uh, we're there yet either. I think still there's more focus on accountability for numbers um, and that performance side of the equation uh, rather than accountability for the health of your team, for the sustainability that you're building in, for the trust that you've created. So I think it's a really good reminder of where we've all got to work towards. Yeah, and I think that as more people step into that space, it's going to become more commonplace. I remember a couple of years ago, I was having a really hard time and it was at the end of a busy week and stuff had happened. And I made a decision for the first time in my career that I was going to head back to Dubai early just for my own mental health and my own resilience and well-being. So I knew what I had to do to get back into that productive or resourceful state. A couple of weeks later, I went back to Hong Kong and I spoke to some of my team and they said, oh, we were really disappointed that you made that decision. We'd always looked up to you as somebody who was always strong and could do anything. I had to do that for myself. And it's okay sometimes to say I'm having a hard time and I need to get back to be with my family. And uh, they said to me, well, we've just never seen it before. So we thought that it was a weakness. So it was a beautiful conversation where I'm not suggesting we reframed it, but just putting some language behind it meant, okay, that's what it was. It wasn't a weakness. Agreed. And that's why leadership for today requires an infinite mindset. Fantastic. And James, what's your third and final petal? So my third petal, and in many ways, I think this is almost the most important uh, element of this, is that the author talks about the critical to success in this is the courage to lead with this infinite mindset. And it's, it's really true because the author talks at length about how it does take courage to lead with this mindset because you have to have a willingness to take risks today for the good of an unknown future. And the author rightly points out these risks are very real for all of us, particularly because the majority of career opportunities that we have are tied to how well we perform in a finite game. Most of the measures, even if you're on a CEO, the markets are going to measure you on, on the basis of a finite game and the performance and the quarterly earnings as we talked of you're within an organization. A lot of promotions and career opportunities will be based on your performance from a finite game. So it takes courage to say, I'm actually going to play with an infinite mindset. The risks and the temptation are that it's easier 
for a leader to tinker with that quarter or that year. It's easier uh, as an individual who's looking for career promotion to focus on those small, short-term decisions that might help you get a strong performance rating at the end of the year and, and therefore improve your chances of promotion. And, and all of this is sort of reinforced by the fact that so many of us uh, get our self-worth that you know, reinforced and tied into the impressions that other people have of us and therefore by implication on how well we perform on that finite game. So I think, you know, the author outlines very effectively how difficult it is. And he does talk about a couple of ways and how you how you can get the courage. Actually, I mean, if I'm being a little bit critical here, I, I don't think he spends enough time on this. He, he talks about two uh, ways in which you can get this courage, but I think it's 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 harder than he 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 um he infers. I, I almost feel like he's writing maybe from perspective of bias of someone who's already very successful at the top and and might be easier to 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 therefore take that journey. But the two methods that he talks about, the first is a life shattering experience that that shakes us to our core and forces us to to look with a longer term mindset. The second idea, if you don't want to wait for this this sort of life shattering moment is um, to, to link it to what we discussed earlier, to link it particularly to a just cause. And, and the author talks about the power of purpose, that if you can have a just cause that's bigger than yourself and you, you therefore get this power of purpose to focus on the long-term decisions that are required to advance that just cause, you can then have the courage to lead with an infinite mindset. And again, you're a big airline fan, and, and seems like a lot of our examples, Sammy, come with this. But it, but it's uh, maybe too many. <laughs> but he talks about um, someone called Doug Park. I'm not sure you've come across him. It was the first time I'd, I'd read about this. Who became the CEO of American West Airlines ten days before September 11th, 2001. And he talks about the battle to to then save the company. But he says the turning point for him. Uh, Parker says, was a conversation he had with a cabin crew member who shared his her personal story and her dependence on a job. And, and some, something was flicked in, in, in uh, Doug Parker's mind and, and it suddenly became real. It became, there was a personal story. And he said that the commitment to a purpose bigger than ourselves can drive us to accomplish things we would likely not be able to if we were simply working on our own account. Absolutely. And listeners will have heard me say on previous episodes, purpose doesn't have to be a huge thing. A story that he mentioned about Noah, a coffee barista who was working in the Las Vegas for seasons, I believe, really resonated with me. And after ordering the coffee, he said, do you like your job? And Noah immediately replied, I love my job. And he said, so tell me specifically, what is it about the four seasons makes you say that you love your job? And without skipping a beat again, Noah replied, throughout the day, managers walk past me and ask how I'm doing. Is there anything I need, anything they can do to help? And it's not just his manager, it's any manager. And Noah works for another hotel and he says, in that hotel, he just keeps his head below the radar, the parapet, because when the managers walk past him, they try to catch people doing things wrong. So when I think about purpose, I link organizational to life purpose. He ends that paragraph with, only of the four seasons do I feel I can be myself. 
Yeah, and it's interesting how closely linked that is to the idea of vulnerability and trusting teams. So I, I look, I agree with the author. It is absolutely critical to to try and have the courage to lead. I, I think he, he underestimates how difficult that can be, particularly perhaps if you're earlier in your leadership journey and you're within a large organization and the ecosystem around you might not be encouraging towards that infinite mindset. But I don't think that that undermines the point. I think it reinforces the criticality and I think it reinforces the importance on all of us, anyone who is in a leadership position, to be focusing in on this and to be creating that environment, that ecosystem where people are rewarded for focusing on longer term decisions, on sustainably driven actions and for, for acting with an infinite mindset. So we've come to the end of the litmus test. My central message, Sammy, is Your central message is leadership for today requires an infinite mindset. Spot on, spot on. Fantastic. Well, thank you, James. Thanks to Simon Sinek and, of course, all of our listeners. Can't wait to have a conversation with John Flint about the book that he put forward. And for our listeners, use the hashtag eight words or less, as always, to share your thoughts, experiences. And if you've not already done so, make sure you subscribe so you can download our previous episodes and make sure you never miss a new one. Bye for now.